Hello, and welcome to Evaluland, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Welcome to another episode of Evaluland. This week, I'm chatting with Jennifer Bisgard, founder and director of Kulisa. She's managed and led evaluations for more than 20 years and offered to come share her insights into project management, given her ample experience doing evaluation and that project management. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Jennifer, and sharing all of your infinite wisdom with us. Thank you. Really appreciate being here. Yeah, and thank you for uh, accepting my invitation. I had an open call on Twitter. This is for all my listeners as well um, to come on and share about project management. I was getting some questions from folks. And so uh, this episode and our next one, we'll be talking about project management. I'm very excited because I don't feel like there's enough out there on how to do this well. I feel like it's always just like uh, you learn as you go. And so I'd love to hear, I'm very excited to hear about all of your experiences. Before, before we get into all that though, could you please introduce yourselves for our listeners? Um, tell us about your evaluation background and a little bit about Kulisa. Sure. So I am actually an American, but I'm based in Johannesburg, South Africa. I um, originally came to South Africa in 1988 as part of the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act, um, which is what was sanctions in the US. And so um, there was a fund set aside by Congress to build black leadership in South Africa. So I came out here and I was running the education portfolio in USAID and I have all kinds of stories about being followed by the security police and, um, you know, saving people from torture and other things. And then in 1993, I left USAID. They wanted to transfer me to Kazakhstan. And I said, no, I don't really want to leave. It's just getting interesting. And I um, started Kulisa Management Services, which is the largest evaluation company in Africa. And, um, and so I've been a founder and owner and a director at Kulisa for the last 28 years. We just had our birthday on October 1st. And we um, do evaluations, monitoring. We do systems, um, strengthening work really around evidence and using evidence. And so a big chunk of our work is actually project management because you can't have a $2 million evaluation and not manage it properly. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And happy birthday to you and your team at Kulisa. That's awesome. I, um, I'm excited because, yes, I think project management is like obviously important in those larger, bigger projects, but I, it's also so important in our smaller ones. And, you know, when you only have so many funds and so much time, but you're new to evaluation, like one of my students, or you're finally taking on your own evaluation after being a, a, an evaluation associate or something like that. Um, still really important to know how to do this well. So I'm just, again, really excited to hear from you on all that. So this, to start us off, I just have a very broad question kind of get us going is just like, how do you approach managing evaluation projects? What's going through your head? What does this mean to you to manage an evaluation project? So there's the technical side of it, which is thinking through how are you going to approach an evaluation question and how feasible it is um, and doing, sometimes we say to our clients, you actually need to do an, uh, an assessment to see if there is an evaluability. And we've done a number of those and they sometimes show that the evaluation is feasible or it's not. Um, and but many evaluators are placed in a position where they can't say, well, this is not actually an evaluable project. I need the revenue, so I'm going to do the evaluation anyway. And that's very problematic because it, you do run into all sorts of issues related to legitimacy and whether or not you can answer the evaluation questions. Um, so once you've established the, that it is actually a valuable, then the next thing is to really work very closely with your client to refine your evaluation questions. Because we find that when they've done it in a vacuum um, and they've put it out in their request for proposals and they say, okay, we wanna answer these questions. If we work through the implications of those questions, often the questions change quite significantly. 
And so that's a really important step that I think a lot of new evaluators miss out on. They don't realize that they have that power to actually negotiate the evaluation questions. Um, and, and sometimes it's missing questions, not just refining the questions. And it's sometimes needing to bring in some of the other stakeholders, the beneficiaries of the program or the partners on the program to make sure that the evaluation will actually get to the question. So that's a huge part of our planning and our process. And so we always run workshops around the evaluation questions. And then you're matching your methodology to your evaluation questions. And we do a pre-analysis plan. And so when we're thinking about the evaluation questions, we're also thinking, okay, how can we most efficiently and effectively answer these questions? And what sort of data do we need? And again, the first the instinctive step for most new evaluators is to say, oh, I'm going to collect all this data instead of thinking about what sort of secondary they could use. Can they use the monitoring data from the program or the project? Can they get other data that would be useful to answer the question? So, for example, um, in South Africa, we have something like you can you can buy airtime for your cell phone in a pay-as-you-go mode. Well, the cell phone companies make those maps available and they're actually such great proxies for poverty. So if you need a poverty indicator, that might be a good source of, uh, of data or um, satellite photos, if you're doing an agricultural evaluation are very useful. Um, and so thinking about what secondary sources of data are already there, can we mine the monitoring data so that instead of getting brand new data, we're actually validating data that already exists? Two different levels of effort, right? Because you want to keep that level as low as possible. And then you want to match the respondent to the question so that you're getting the right. You don't want to ask an evaluation question to a respondent who can't answer or shouldn't answer. And you really want to make sure that um, you start to design your instruments to match that process and to maximize it. So one of the things that we can get into at, at a later stage is some of the technologies that we've used during COVID to get data in places like Ethiopia. Um, and, but I make my, especially my new evaluator staff, map every single question against evaluation question. So if you're asking somebody's age, how are you gonna use that data? Okay, that's an obvious one. But if you're asking their opinion about something and then later on you don't use it, there is nothing worse, okay? And quite often at this stage of the game, we also find that the organization being evaluated has boxes of data sitting around where they've done surveys, but nobody's ever analyzed it. Nobody's ever entered that data. So that also is a great source of answering the questions. So this pre-planning stage takes much longer. And I know people are anxious to get in there and collect the data as fast as possible and get on with analyzing it. It's so exciting. Um, and so we, we really resist that. We, we say there needs to be quite a bit of time. And then the next thing is to do a very thorough pretest of the instruments. Um, again, the assumption by new evaluators is, oh, yes, this will be perfect. I can't imagine what would change. But it always, always, always does. So I've been doing you know, evaluations for over 25 years. And I still think, oh, this instrument's going to be great. Nobody's going to have any problem with it. And go see the pretest, and it gets changed in 50 different ways. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that thorough pretest, and in some cases, we've just tested, for example, 10,000 learners in one of the provinces here in South Africa and uh, for early grade reading. And we ended up pretesting that instrument three different times. Um, because we just needed it to be super valid and to really work and for us to be able to market and to get rid of any ambiguity 
we had issues with learners having masks on. So how in the oral reading part of it, how would they do that? So we ended up developing some screens that the learners could be behind. And so, you know, you come up with strategies that you probably wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Like mm -hmm. I wouldn't have predicted that the masks would, would be a problem for us to be able to assess whether or not the, the learner was reading correctly or not. Right. So, yeah. So there's that. Do you want me to carry on? Go for it. Yeah, you've got okay. some like a wealth of information. This is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so then, and during this time, we also do what we call a QOSP, which is a quality assurance surveillance plan. Um, and so we do that. We get the client to sign off on that. So that's how we're going to quality assure all of our data, what we're going to do in terms of, of keeping things confidential, um, adhering to privacy, um, ensuring that the data couldn't be misused or, um, you know, used in another way or fall into somebody's hands. And, um, and so, and at this stage, we're also thinking very much in our pre-analysis plan, how we're going to triangulate the data. So if we're collecting data in one way from one source, what's the other source that can either validate it? Is it something that we can see? Or is it something that we have to ask somebody else? Or is it a record? Or is it something like that? So I'll give you an example from an evaluation we did years ago. It was of early childhood development centers. And we were going out to a randomly selected group of about 300 of these centers. And so the question was to the center, do you have first aid kits? Because that was one of the indicators of a well-functioning um, ECD site, early childhood development site. And, uh, and they would say, yes. And then the field worker would say, please show it to me. Yeah. <laughs> and then you would find out that in 90% of the cases, they didn't have it, or they had an empty box, or they had something like that. And so then the field worker, because this was a longitudinal study, the field worker said, you know, you have to make sure that you actually have it and it's useful. And that was in the days of HIV AIDS being really scary and children having HIV. Um, and so having a pair of gloves was critical and so on and so forth. So the next year we went back to the sites and 90% of them were able to show us their, <laughs> their um, kits, but almost always. I mean, another evaluation we did of science equipment and almost inevitably it was locked away because there's a hoarding mentality in low resource environments. So it's not enough to ask a key informant, do you have, or are you using? Because they'll always say yes, but then you want to see it. Or um, in another case, it was a big training program for principals. And um, so we wanted to see, they got given a binder of all their resources. So we wanted to see it. If the principal couldn't find the binder, there you go. That was one of our options for the field worker. <laughs> if um, they could find it, but it was clearly pristine, that was listed as a different category. And then the third category, which was that it was well thumbed. And then you would ask a follow on question about, so, you know, and the name of a resource, how do you, do you know where that is in this? And they would be able to open it up and you could really see. And so that was a real indicator of whether or not that training had been successful or not. I love how you spend so much time on the planning. You've got that pre-planning plan uh, or pre-analysis plan. You have you pre-test all your instruments. Then you test to make sure that all the data that is coming in from the field is actually like of good quality, which um, I've definitely had similar instances where I um, they told me, yes, we have this data. And then I get the data and it is awful. Um, typically not in a usable format um, and sometimes not usable at all. Right. And so then it's like, right. okay, let's do some capacity building on how to, how to collect good data. This is stuff that you should have been monitoring and stuff, but um, for whatever reason you weren't, and that's fine. Um, and, but I, I just love the, the approach of so much planning. Um, and I, I appreciate that idea of mapping each individual survey or interview item or data point to the actual evaluation question. I, I have done it where it's just by method to the question. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, I think I'm more and more realizing that, yeah, it needs to be at that item level because 
I will get to exam, like you provide the same example, the demographic section in uh, their evaluation measure. And I'm like, why are you asking about gender? None of your evaluation questions are about gender or any demographic differences really. So, so why are you collecting that? And then they might be like, oh, the, the, their client wants to know, and that's great, but then let's add like a client needs section um, so that you know to report back to them that type of information, right? But you can't just say, oh, I just have this extra data point um, because either the instrument's gonna end up too long or you're just gonna collect data that's unnecessary. So I, I just I really appreciate that mentality, which it reminds me of like the open science approach to doing this and also just how we do like theses and dissertations, right? We have to get a proposal. We have to do all of that solid work. Ideally, we might pre-register our stuff, which requires us to do all this pre-planning, right? It's so right. easy to just get to the point of, okay, I here's my measures. Now I'm going to go to data collection. It's been approved, right? But not right. thinking critically, like, are these good measures? Are these the, the right measures? Are these the right questions? And so these are just like really fascinating and fabulous ways to think about that planning and spending so much time there. I'm kind of curious, how, how do you contract that into your work? So I think one of the advantages of having been an evaluation company for so long is that we've been training our clients for a long time as well, right. that you actually have to put enough time and effort into this pre-work in order for the, the level of evaluation that you're looking for. If you're really looking for learning, if you're really looking for impact, you really need those kind of things. Yeah, so we have then a whole quality assurance process, which you just mentioned briefly now, which we follow very extensively. And, and I can send you an example of one if you'd like. Um, and it goes to everything about how we're training our field workers to how once the data flows in, what are the quality checks that have to happen to that? How, how do we write the scripts related to cleaning that data? Um, what are we going to do to make sure that the variable names are right and that they match? So quite often we have multiple data sets where we have to answer an evaluation question, say on the impact of COVID. And so you, your variable names are really need to be similar or the same actually, um, in order to do the analyses that you want. Otherwise you spend an inordinate amount of time and effort cleaning the data later. And, and thinking about the data entry side of things. So we, um, we really try to avoid doing manual data entry, but sometimes you have to. So this 10,000 learners that we just tested, they each wrote a test, okay? So those scripts have to be marked. It's very high stakes stuff. So we can't have a huge margin of error. So we've got a team of 15 people here right now going through marking and entering. And then we've got another person independently marking the same script and entering it. Wow. And then we're looking for the matches. And we've also got a moderator who comes along and looks at everything that gets flagged. Is this okay or isn't this okay? Because this is kind of okay. And in this particular place um, project, we are helping the government of South Africa to establish language benchmarks. So to know if a child is reading at a certain level and they don't exist in Africa. So you don't know that. And so people are shocked when they get to grade five and 72% of the kids can't read for meaning, meaning in South Africa. So you really want to be able to say, okay, this child is reading at this level. So these tests are absolutely critical. They'll affect the education of kids for the next 50 years. So you gotta get it right. Uh, so that's sort of there. In terms of the training of field workers, again, we spend a lot of time on that. The training for this particular um, assignment was seven days at a hotel. There were 150 field workers. And we select, we always over-recruit field workers because there are always duds. Quite interesting. When we were selecting them in this in this particular case, they had to be fluent in Swana, which is one of the local languages. And so we did interviews. We asked each of the of the people to um, 
to send us a voice clip on WhatsApp, demonstrating that they can speak Swana. And so, and then we, those who we got their voice clip and they made the minimum requirement, then we phoned them and interviewed them in Swana, not just in English. And you'd be surprised at how many people didn't pass that particular marker, even though they were Swana born. Then when it came to it, we always assess the field workers and we only hire the best ones. So we have a series of assessments that have to do with role playing. They actually go into the field and do the instruments there. And so we mark them on that. We do a test on the project and whether or not they can explain the project, if they can, and, and whether or not, funnily enough, they can actually do the project management of their own expenses. <laughs> so that's one of our tests. And so, you know, in the end, we ended up with 110 field workers, 12 supervisors, three coordinators, and a, and a field work manager um, in the field. And they, they had all been selected, but they all felt special because they knew that they'd pass these tests. And that, that's actually a huge lift for people. Um, and then you have to set up very clear lines of communication and ways that things can be um, quickly and easily um, reported up. So if something has gone wrong, if a principal is being intransigent, what are the steps that you have to take? Um, all of those kind of issues. There's a service delivery protest in this neighborhood, so we can't get to the school. What do we do? You get rerouted to another school. You know, those kind of things. Uh, we're lost. <laughs> happened, you know. Uh, can't find the school. We've got the GPS coordinates and we can get them to you. Um, we can give you an alternative routing. So there's all kinds of other things. You're supposed to get there before 7 a.m., even though school starts at 7.30, so that you've got a buffer period. Those, those are all management um, things that we've sorted out. Then we always have a field worker debrief session because you don't, they see things that you didn't think of about in your instrument. So we go through the evaluation questions and they say, based on your observations, what do you think the answers are? And sometimes we do that with a Jamboard um, or, or something else so that people feel anonymous um, and sometimes with a questionnaire, but often it's best to do face-to-face -face and people are, you break them into small groups and then they talk about the things that went well and things didn't go well. And then the answers to the evaluation questions. So that's another kind of thing that lots of other evaluation companies don't do, but it gives you a lot of insight. Yeah. So then, then you have the data entry. And again, I think I've spoken about that. And then you get to the analysis part of the, the equation and looking at how you're going to do the qualitative and the quantitative analysis. So in one evaluation that we did last year during COVID, the project it was like a, a $20 million project that we were evaluating. The project told the client and the stakeholders that they had pivoted to um, coaching virtually rather, you know, by WhatsApp and, and so on and so forth. So in our evaluation methodology, we didn't have any way of monitoring this virtual coaching. So we came up with a strategy and it's actually available as a, as a, pod, a video from us, as well as the whole hints about how do you analyze WhatsApp data and be able to establish if they actually did the coaching virtually or not. So there's a whole process of becoming an admin and downloading the data and then doing the analysis. And then, um, and we were able to show that while a few of the coaches did actually pivot and did do it, the vast majority of them didn't. And, uh, and so if we just accepted at face value what the project was saying, oh yes, we pivoted, then you know we wouldn't have the insight that we have now about the success or failure of that particular project that was an implementation evaluation. And then you get to the write-up. And you know, the question always with the write-up is how do you present data, which can be very boring. And a lot of my young evaluators really struggle with switching from being a researcher to being an evaluator. Mm. So and I always give them this lecture, 
what is the value of what we're seeing, okay? And, and what are we measuring that value against? Is it a rubric? Is it a benchmark? Is it an international best practice? Is it what the project promised it would do? There's lots of different ways you can think about benchmarking or rubrics or whatever. And, and you have to get past this, I wanna just present to you the data, you make up your own mind mentality of researcher to an evaluator, this is the data and this is what it means. And this is how it is answering the evaluation question. And people really struggle with that transition. And so I spend a lot of time mentoring my staff on, okay, so now we're all looking at the data together. So we have, some people call it a data party where we have all the data and we we then start to try to make meaning out of that data. So we know that this is going to answer this evaluation question. Does it help us to answer that evaluation question? How are we going to summarize it? Is it going to end up just being one bullet in the answer? Is it going to be a page? Is it an infographic? Is it a graph? Um, and then how do you present it in a way that the reader feels empowered to get to the point where they can understand the answer to the evaluation question? because we're all about utilization. For me, there's nothing worse than having an evaluation, doing all this fabulous work, and then you know nobody's reading it. That's not on. Yeah. So we're constantly thinking about how are we gonna present this? And, and often we'll do a very short form of the report and then a longer form of the report and then a super long report, depending on the clientele, because uh, they'll have academics in the background, love mm -hmm. academics, but they want <laughs> everything, right? <laughs> Whereas the board of the foundation just wants that five page summary. Right. And this is the answer to each evaluation question. And this is what you should do about it. And then I can get to recommendations and how we do that. So the final stage of this is once we've analyzed the data and we've got answers to the um, questions, we do not, as a rule, develop the recommendations ourselves. We take them back to those stakeholders who helped us refine the evaluation questions at the beginning. And we say, okay, this is, the, this is our findings. This is the answer. This is what the data is and what it draws. To, and that's how we got to this conclusion. Does it make sense? Is this the right explanation for this? Am I, did we miss something? Did we miss a factor? Is, is there something different here um, that explains what our findings were? And there may be, you know, maybe there was a huge storm last year and things were knocked out for a month and therefore it's like this and we didn't know about that. And then we ask those groups to come up with recommendations, right? So they develop the recommendations. We often seed our recommendations in those groups. So we work in small groups and we'll talk about it and stuff. We hang them up and we do something called a gallery walk where people walk around and they write comments on it. And then ultimately um, we get them to vote on which of them. So we kind of put it in a matrix way easy and important, important and difficult to implement, um, easy to implement, but not so important and not so important and difficult to implement mm. so that you, you get a sense of which ones could be done and which ones couldn't be done. And sometimes you add another layer with, which is short-term versus medium-term versus long-term, depending on the time program it is in terms of the recommendations. But what we find is that process really gives the stakeholders a sense of ownership. Yeah. And they're so much more likely to use the recommendations um, and to actually build in management systems and structures to, to follow up on those recommendations and to say, okay, we said that we're going to do this. These are the steps that we're gonna take. And then, so then there's the kind of final process of then packaging the report, giving the draft report again back to the stakeholders. This is sometimes a delicate process because there might be some stakeholders who want to change your findings. And so 
there's there's always a bit of a dance around that. Um, and we will sometimes suggest that they um, add an annex to our evaluation where they publish any differences or issues that they might have or a different interpretation that they might have of of the work. Um, and then and then it gets published and hopefully it gets published also in infographic as well as the short and longer and medium term and sometimes presentations. Yeah. There we go. I have, I have so many questions for you. I've been I've been frantically <laughs> writing down all my questions and thoughts. I've I just this has been so helpful. I'm curious, um, what does your team structure look like? You're, you're, you're explaining the one where you've got the 10,000 student, uh, you know, testing for uh, their reading comprehension, it sounds like. Um, yeah, reading ability. Reading ability. And with such a large fieldwork team, with such a large project, with so much like that needs to be done in terms of the, the, the data collection, the data entry, the data analysis, like what does that team structure look like? Yeah, so it's huge. <laughs> that sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm the evaluation director for that particular project. Then we have an evaluation manager and an evaluation coordinator. So there's some hierarchy there. Yeah, and how do how do those three all like play with each other, right? Like what are the role responsibilities for each of those three? Because I'm used to like one project manager, right? And yes. then you're coordinating a team. And you, it sounds like you have three different ones with three very different responsibilities. I'm very curious what that those differences are. Yeah, so I am the kind of high level quality assurance. I'm client facing. So um, in this particular case, the evaluation is funded by USAID and by, and by the Department of Basic Education, which is the government ministry here. And so I handle issues at that level. Mm -hmm. um, I also get called upon to provide advice, training, support, and stuff. But I don't do the day-to-day -day management. Um, so the day-to-day high-level management, especially in this particular case, we have subcontractors, we have two universities who are involved, who are doing the data, well, actually three universities who are involved and a, and a large NGO who are helping with the data analysis, who are helping with the stats. Um, and they, they get managed by the next level. And then the evaluation coordinator is the one who handles the fieldwork manager, the logistics coordinator, the, the finance coordinator, the contracts coordinator, the HR coordinator. So we have a massive team because recruiting this many field workers, we don't have them all on call. You had to recruit them. Right. So just in the recruitment um, level, we had three people working on the combination of recruitment and contacting the schools and organizing the field work, logistics and so on and so forth, which is all made a little bit worse with our, we've constantly had lockdowns. So the schools have been closed and then opened and closed and opened. Right. So making sure that, that that all goes swimmingly. And then we had a um, three week period for data collection and then a fourth week for what we call data mop up where you go back to schools where you miss something or because in this particular play uh, evaluation, some of the learners have been followed since grade one, now are in grade seven. And so we were, we had to find them yeah. and they weren't all at the same, at their same school. Sometimes yeah. they were at one of the other schools that we were at. So they needed to stay in the sample. And so that was complicated. You had to get parental permission and so we had somebody in charge of getting the parental forms to the schools and then collecting them. So, you know, 10,000 forms that also needed to be captured and left. We used a service provider called Geopole, who does, um, who does voice, there's a, there's a specific term for it, um, voice activated um, questionnaires where we were getting the parental opinions about the reading and, and how it was learning loss due to COVID. So huge team. And so each one of them has other people on their team. Um, and each 
each subset team has to be reporting up, up and up. And uh, yeah, so it's it is complex uh, complicated. But the budget for this particular evaluation is two point six million dollars, and it's done over a space of eleven months. So it's hectic. Did that eleven months also include the planning phase, all this pre-planning and? Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we just finished data collection at the end of um, September. You know, now we're going into report writing and analysis and data cleaning. And, you know, in this particular case, we also had to do 10,000 linking forms so that we made sure that the learner was linked to the right teacher, like linked to the right the school yeah. and all those things. Because if any of those things fall over, then you can't make any conclusions about their about their, you know, how well they're reading. I was just going to say it was a reading benchmark, but it's also an impact evaluation um, for this particular program. So it's a combination of those two things and serving two different purposes. How many other projects do you have going on simultaneous with this one? Uh, right now, I think we've got about 18. Is this 2.6 million one the biggest of them all? It's the biggest standalone evaluation it's not the biggest project we're running a um, evaluation and learning project in zambia looking at, at the nutrition of the under five-year-olds across the country and that's 15 million dollars over five years so that's where we're going out and and there there the data collections you know you're you're measuring height and weight of babies you know <laughs> and uh, and assessing how clinics are advising mothers um, on nutrition status and you're yeah you're looking at food availability and belief systems of of parents and caregivers and in zambia for example it's not the mother who decides what the baby eats it's the mother-in-law who mm -hmm. has the power yeah and so you can do all the parental training you want you're aiming your training at completely the wrong level in that particular case you need to be targeting the grandmother yeah who controls how the baby eats and the paternal grandmother specifically it sounds yes, like exactly, yeah. exactly. Ah, interesting this this is all just boggling my mind just a little bit because like my biggest project i've done is um probably just shy of you know, six figures. Right. And so, <laughs> um, and you're here in the like nine to 10 figures and, um, yeah, I have like a lot of little small projects that I do most of the work on. And so it feels like a lot, but then you get to this level and I'm just like, I can't even imagine. So this is, it, I'm help. It has been very helpful helping me wrap my head around like this and the enormity of the work that you're doing. Cause this is not at the level that I usually work at. Um, particularly when I work with my students, I'm not we're not doing no. a year long $10 million grant type thing. So uh, this is helpful. But also the stakes are very high because policy yeah. and, and lots of people's livelihoods depend on whether or not there is impact or not. Did they actually make a difference? Did this change the trajectory? Because in South Africa, if you can't read, you can't beat poverty, you can't, it's got, it's very high stakes. You have to get it right. And you mentioned the registry. So because it's an impact evaluation, you have to register both your hypothesis, your evaluation questions onto an impact evaluation registry so that you're not oh. turning around later and saying, oh, the impact of the project was this because you're, you're making your hypothesis fit your data. Right. I, I was not aware that anybody in evaluation was doing this. Is this, is this specific to South Africa or with your particular funder? Like who are you registering with? So I can give you the name of the registry, um, but there's a number of them and that is their purpose. And it's so that you avoid this, yeah. this issue. Um, and it's super important if you're doing any sort of impact evaluation. Well, I, I think it's important regardless of what type of evaluation we're doing. I'm um... performance evaluations are a little bit different. You know, you're looking at whether or not you're staying to plan, whether or not your development hypothesis is working, whether your theory of change holds. Those are those are not the level of rigor that an impact evaluation has to have. 
I mean, yes, but I think also like the, all the stuff that you talked about in your pre-planning phase, like, I, I think regardless of whether it's an impact or a process evaluation, whether it's very exploratory versus, um, trying to find a summative judgment. Um, I still think it's really important that we do this. Um, even if our plan completely changes, uh, cause it, it forces us to think very critically about what we're doing, why we're doing it. Um, and I just, I was not aware anybody in evaluation was really doing this. Cause I, I approach it from kind of the researcher side of things and the open science framework and open science practices. And I've, been wanting to write a paper uh, for the longest time on like open practice, open science practices and evaluation. And like, this is awesome because I, I didn't know people were doing this and I didn't know this was a thing because I don't usually do impact evaluations, especially not at this level. So um, this is awesome. I'm very excited about that. You, you mentioned that the stakes are high for your evaluations. I think it also well, sounds for like this the, particular one. Yeah. Yeah. But um I get the sense that it feels high of a stakes for your stakeholders as well. Um, like the, the on the ground folks, um, you're, you're mentioning that people say, oh yes, I have this. Oh yes, we're using this. But then you find out either they don't have it or they're not using it. Um, and it just may be um, really interested. I have a student who is um, writing her their thesis on thinking about uh, ethics from this, the standpoint of the stakeholder. And in this case, like, like an on the ground, like a principal at a school, like who needs to report on what they're doing at their school. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about that in terms of the, their ethical, you know, like why are they technically like falsifying data when they report back out? Um, and how, how might we mitigate that? Like, I, it sounds like your approach is to just you uh, triangulate with other data sources or verify their data. Um, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are about all of that. So, particularly on this continent, but I think it's probably true worldwide, people want to be doing the right thing. Yeah. We all we all do this. This is not just them, you know? Or, oh, have you done your timesheets? Yes, of course I have. Whoops, quickly, go and do your timesheets, you know? <laughs> um, and that sort of, it's a, it's also a people pleasing thing. They want to give the, the person who's coming in from outside the right answer, even though there isn't a right answer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's natural, that's just human nature, but that's why we verify it. And we also have to really guard against the, what I call the ox shame, uh, syndrome of field workers. They feel sorry for a school. So they give them a better rating than they would elsewise. Mm. So one of the questions I always ask the field workers and gets added onto all my questionnaires where a field worker is going to the school. So if you, would you send your own child to the school? Wow. Yes, no, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So if they say no, I actually know. <laughs> That, that I need to discount their work a, a little bit. Um, mm. and, uh, and that, you know, while they're saying positive things, because people will, especially field workers, will feel like, oh, I'll give them a three out of a five, you know, because shame, they're trying so hard, right? But if they say, absolutely not, I would never send my child to the school there, they're probably closer to a two or a one. So you can interrogate that a little bit more. And it, provides you with a data marker that says, okay, let's think about this. Hmm. And, and it's, it's funny. It's, it's super accurate, that question. Interesting. <laughs> because if you're thinking from my own perspective, this is just, I just want your own opinion. I don't want anybody else. Would you send your own child to the school? But we, we do photographic evidence for all of these things too. So our validation for a lot of our school functionality questions are photos. So, and um, one of the indicators, we've been working on school functionality type questions for about, gosh, 20 years now. Um, if the learner's bathrooms are in horrible maintenance, poorly maintained, filthy, you know, no, no running water, all sorts of things, then it's a hugely correlated with a poorly managed school. Wow. 
And if, you know, so you can, and so we just say, we don't even ask them to rate them anymore. We used to ask them to rate them. Now we just ask them for photos. So go take a photo of this, take a photo of this, take a photo of the kitchen, um, take a photo of the security situation, um, take any other photos that stand out, you know, the goat wandering into the classroom, take a photo of that. You know, if that's happening, you want to know about it. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's so correlated and good management of schools is super correlated with results. So we have this then uh, essentially we've put together, you can say what the functionality of the school is, and then you can use that as, as one of your um, indicators that you cross check with and you start to look at, at causal cases. So we find that better run schools have learners who can read better. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm curious what, well, first you, you, you present all of this of like all these phases of your project management as if it's a perfectly linear process. And I'm going to guess that's not the case. So I'm kind of curious, like, do all these phases happen? Um, and like, how might they like, maybe not be so linear? Um, like how has that kind of shown up in your projects? So when you're drafting the QASP, you're like, oh, we forgot to do this. Oops, better do that. <laughs> you know, so there's absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, we present our data collection instruments for approval by the client, by the stakeholders. And sometimes they'll pick up something and then we'll have to go back and we'll have to refine this and refine that. So it's, it's often a circular process. Um, and many, many sources of data will feed into something. So um, we're finishing the parental telephone interviews next week, even though we did the data collection, you know, three weeks ago. So they, you know, it, it is a circular activity. And, and certainly there are times when you're writing the report and you look, look at the analysis and you say, ah, we actually need to look at this and this. You need to go back and run the stats. Um, and, you know, sometimes that can take days, weeks. Yeah. Months. <laughs> um, what does the mentorship of, like, you mentioned mentorship of, like, your newer evaluators on your team. What, what kind of mentorship do you provide and what does that look like? So we do kind of a series of things. We do some internal training. Um, I spend, you know, after they draft and I don't ask them to draft much, but like the first response to the evaluation questions, I'll spend a lot of time giving feedback to them about, okay, you've presented the data, but what does it mean? And often they can articulate that they have difficulty writing it down. Mm. So it's getting that breakthrough, um, and so we use a transcription app called Otter. Yep. And so we'll record that and then they'll have the whole discussion where they'll actually have a transcript so then they can edit that. That sometimes makes a breakthrough. Um, what a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I know it really, really makes a difference. I, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've spent coaching master's degree students who just can't write their conclusions. And I'm yeah. like, okay, Find somebody who's interested but doesn't know anything about your subject, explain it to them, get them to ask questions, get it all on your otter transcript, and then your conclusion will be written. And I, it's broken through a whole bunch of writer's blocks by doing that. Yeah, I usually find that with uh, my thesis students that I will ask them, like, like they'll, they'll, they'll be stuck. And so then they'll come to me and then we'll talk about it. And it's just like, oh, they'll say like, oh, um, you make me know, like, feel like I know what I'm talking about. I'm like, all I did was ask some probing questions. You know what you're talking about. It's just a matter of like translating that. But I haven't ever thought about recording that so that that conversation, everything they just wrote is is there, right? So then they can just take it, plop it in and then make it a little bit more readable, right? Um, so I need to start recording my sessions a little bit more apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, good. Um, and the cool thing about Otter is that it gives you the transcript and you can just tap on the word 
if it doesn't look right. Um, and it'll play just that word. So you don't have to listen to the whole thing again. And that's really nice. Um, because especially if you're dealing with a million different accents um, and second language speakers on both sides, both the interviewee and the interviewer. Um, what other inclusion of stakeholders do you have in your evaluations and how do you how do you manage those stakeholders? Because you mentioned them at the end with the um, the great uh, little matrix of the recommendations of ease of use and importance of use um, or implementation, I should say. Um, but how else do you include them? How else do you manage them throughout the process? So that's always one of the big dilemmas when you're doing your planning is who is in and who is out, right? Um, so I remember doing an evaluation years ago in, in uh, rural Tanzania. And we were supposed to talk to mothers. And so we went to the chiefs and asked, who are the mothers? And because, you know, and we only found out later, but it took a little while. And then we figured it out that the chiefs only considered the women who were married mothers. Mm -hmm. So the unmarried mothers were not considered mothers, but they were in fact, the most important stakeholders in this particular mm -hmm. program. So, where are the boundaries who is in and who is out is probably your most important decision that you're making and sometimes that's predefined for you by the program or project but then you need to decide how do you make sure that the beneficiaries voices are heard and not just think of them as um, single dimensional so if you're living in a community you are a parent, you are a worker, you're a member of the community, you might run a little project of your own. So you might have four stakes that are related to this particular project. You might, if it's an HIV AIDS project, you might have two foster children as well. So you're a foster and you're the, and so one of the arts of evaluation is not to forget that not to just consider think the teacher is just a teacher but the teacher is also a parent and a member of the community and 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 um, and and when you're asking your evaluation your questions and your instruments to recognize those stakes and then to be able to provide feedback to them because so one of the things we're producing for each school is a report on how they performed against the benchmark of all the others and that's because we've taken up a lot of their time, right? And we will make ourselves available to answer any questions and so on and so forth. It's all pre-populated because the data set is here. And so you set up a macro and you can pre-populate. So we'll be able to produce the 250 reports right. essentially by a push of a button. It does take a little bit more effort than that, but, right. but you can produce it. But it's making sure that they get that feedback, that you're closing the loop, that they're finding something useful. People are researched to death. And it's really very rare that, that you close that, that you think of them as stakeholders in your evaluation. But in fact, they are hugely affected by it. It may affect their resources that they get. It may affect how the district interacts with them in the future. It may, yeah, there's lots of ways that it could affect. It may mean the parents leave, decide that they don't want their children to go to that school anymore. You know, those are all, um, potential consequences of something like this. So that's one stakeholder group that we try to provide feedback to. Then, then there's the stakeholder group of the provincial and um, district level officials who have been working to improve the quality of reading and so on and so forth during the seven years of this, this project that we're now doing the impact evaluation for. So they're another stakeholder group that we were will report back to. And so we will have a series of workshops with them where they interrogate the findings and they do recommendations as well, not just that. And then we've got the national level stakeholders, um, which is augmented with some of these university experts, but also some people from similar projects because language benchmarking has become a big thing. Um, and so there's three other projects in South Africa that are establishing language benchmarks. So they'll also come to our validation and verification and recommendations workshop. So there'll be about 100 people there. 
And so you break it out. You can do it with the gallery walk. You can do it by breaking it out so that each group gets a finding and then they think about what the recommendations are related to. And so we manage it that way. Um, and we have, we'll have like 10 facilitators there. So, yeah. <laughs> so we make sure that people stay on track and they actually get to the recommendations and they write them and they're actionable. You know, who, what, <laughs> when, where, how have to be answered by those recommendations because otherwise they don't, you know, you know, you can make a recommendation, but it's just floating out there if it's not assigned to something or right. somebody. I appreciate your earlier comment about the art of all of this, right? I think there's, that's perhaps why people struggle so much with this part. Like the methodology kind of is what it is. Um, there is a bit of an art to that as well, but I think this project management, the contextual awareness and stuff um, really makes this challenging work. Um, I, I know I got a lot of questions about kind of the, the nitty gritty behind all of this, the kind of technical aspects of it. So um, are there any particular software programs or tools that you use to support your project management work? So we use ClickUp, hmm. which is a, a nice um, program and it's essentially free and you can share it with lots of people and you can, it can sync with your calendar and it allows you to make sure that you don't forget. So one of the things that we do early on is is what are, what are our project milestones and how do we put them in? And so then a warning comes up 10 days before, five days before, two days before that you have to have this done. It's hugely helpful when you've got 18 projects going on. Yeah. Um, and making sure that you remember to bill the client and check to see if you receive the funds and yep. all of those kind of things. Um, so that's one. In terms of data collection, we use Kobo Toolbox, which is great. And then for the reading stuff, we use Tangerine. Which is another software program. Do you use um what do you use for like budgeting and timeline creation? Um so we use a system called Cost Point, which is a paid for software. Um and it deals with high levels of complexity. Um and so that wouldn't be appropriate for everybody. Yeah, I just I use Excel. <laughs> yeah, Excel works too. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Did you, by any chance, receive any training in project management? And if so, what did that look like? No, I haven't ever. I think it's been the trial and error, but it's very noticeable when people come in who have had project management training, mm. how, how much easier it is. And then I've done, I've trained other people on project management and in particular government officials. And what is fascinating to me is that I'll make them do a Gantt chart of the year and put on that Gantt chart, you know, actually on a big A3 size Gantt chart, put all the things you have to get done when you know you have to get them done. And of course they realize, oh my God, there's gonna be this big bunch of things that I have to have done by this time. And I haven't even started any of them. And, you know, so getting them to work from that, back from that panicked moment yeah. <laughs> is, um, is a nice way to remind people how to do this. But it's also giving yourself enough time for each one of these project stages. Right. Um, and so, for example, between fieldwork training and actual fieldwork going, field workers going into the field, we prefer to have two weeks. This time we only had one week in between because the field workers always pick up errors in the instruments. So they have to get changed. Sometimes they have to be reprinted. Um, you figure out that the timeline that you originally thought was going to work isn't going to work. And so you have to revise things and you have to make all sorts of logistical changes and, and stuff. So having, we've had to in the past sometimes go from fieldwork training directly into the field. And that's almost always disastrous. That's just awesome. Thank you. Um, do you have any other resources? Like you, you said a couple of your, your staff that have come in, like the ones have that have gotten training, it's very noticeable. Do you know what kind of training they received? Is it a particular project management methodology or? Um, I'll ask them and I'll give you the, the link for that. Awesome. Thank you. And then are there any useful resources you have for other folks um, for project management, like books, websites, anything? 
So I find Michael Quinn Patton's um, utilization, evaluation utilization is a really must, must read. Um, and it really reminds you, why are you doing this? And he's doing, he's leading a, a kind of worldwide movement, the Blue Marble Movement, which is how do we really integrate um, the fact that we have to, we have to have climate change and resilience in mind all the time. Yeah. And then we have to start building it into every element of our work, just as, just like everybody else will have to. Um, and I think some of those resources are useful. Um, we just published today a Kulisa blog on rubrics, um, which I think some people might find useful. Um, and um, we do, as a little plug for Kulisa, a weekly Eval Tuesday tip right. of resources or um, hints or something that we've done or thought about. Um, so you can see some of that, um, some of that field work stuff that I've been talking about is in some of the tips or about three months ago, two months ago. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for all those resources. So thank you for all of this. This has been like so incredibly helpful. I've been frantically writing everything down. Um, I mean, I'll have to listen to this one again um, to, to share with my students for sure. Um, but one thing I like to do to end the show is um, from one of my favorite podcasts from NPR Code Switch. Uh, and they ask what song is what song is giving you life right now? And I like to switch it up a little bit. Like what is an evaluation is giving you life right now? <laughs> what is an evaluation? Um, I am very heartened by the whole blue marble movement. I think it's really exciting. Um, yeah. And it's something that I really want to contribute to. And then um, I'm on the, the board of betterevaluation.org, which many people will know is a fabulous resource out there, the Wikipedia of evaluation. Um, there's going to be some new developments and they'll be announced at the, evalu at the American Evaluation Association in a, in a presidential panel on betterevaluation.org, which I'll be presenting at. So I hope that uh, many of the listeners will join us for that. Um, I'm also speaking at the UK Evaluation Society next week. Um, and it's very nice. They've created a, um, a evaluation bar. And so they're trying to create sort of some of the informal elements that we see at real evaluation conferences for the virtual things. And so I'm one of the facilitators at that. So that should be fun as well. Very cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, with timeline, uh, with when this podcast will come out, I think all of those things will be in the past, but hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully folks will rewatch the recordings or whatever is available afterwards. Um, I'm very excited for that panel. Um, there have been some very, um, lots of new developments at Better Evaluation that, um, for better, you know, I'm a little sad about um, Patricia. Patricia right? Rogers. Yeah. yeah. Well, she's, yeah. Yeah, so she, I think it's for her, it's been a 10 year journey yeah. and she's done a fabulous job. And, you know, institutionalizing something does require a different type of leader. And I have huge respect for the fact that she has seen that and recognized that and is following her passion. And she, she has set up a resource that's going to live on for the next 40 yeah. years easily. She's done fabulous work and I'm excited to see how better evaluation continues to improve and change and help our field. It's just been such an incredible resource. I, I assign multiple website articles um, from there to my students to read. Well, one of the things I ask my new students to do or my new, my new employees to do is to find a resource on better evaluation that they don't know anything about, that they've never heard about in any of their studies, and then to present it to the, and to the rest of the staff. And it, it's such idea. a nice way of getting them to understand how to navigate the site, but also it enriches us because, I mean, on last count, I think I counted that we used 70 different methodologies and evaluations that we did over the last two years. So you really want to make sure that you don't just end up doing exactly the same methodology time after time after time. Yeah, that is such a good idea. And a, a pretty short term, like it's not, it's not too high stakes on, on students to get that done. Like you could turn no. it around in a couple of days type thing. Exactly. Yeah. And 
So one of the big pushes that better evaluation is going to do is we're going to reach out to evaluation students around the globe and um, talking to the academics to see if we can make um, adding a resource to better evaluation as part of your graduation requirements mm. <laughs> or, or course completion requirements, you know, so that we can start crowdsourcing some of the more interesting things that aren't done and aren't known about as much um, and continue to build that resource, the Wikipedia of evaluation. Awesome. I look forward to that. Yeah. And so, so Patricia is one of the speakers on this panel. So Patricia, me, and uh, and a guest speaker, which whose name will remain. I'm going to guess it'll be yeah the new because uh, Patricia. What was her role? Was it executive director? Or C, uh, she was CEO. CEO. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So. So I'm guessing it's going to be her replacement that's going to be the guest speaker. Oh, I'm excited. Stay tuned. <laughs> I will be. I will definitely be there, especially as a presidential panel. Awesome. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. What? Uh, anything you want to share with our listeners at the end? Anything coming up for you? Anything um, about Kulisa that you want to share um, as we wrap up? Just, um, just a bit of advice. Um, if you're applying for a position as an evaluator, please make sure that you get somebody to actually proofread your CV and your cover letter before you send it to me <laughs> or to anybody else yeah. because evaluators are so detail-oriented and I tell you if you've got three typos in your CV then you don't even get considered mm. <laughs> so just a little bit of career advice out there think it through get somebody else to cross-check it that that cross-checking and making that your second Ooh, sorry, making that your second, um, you know, your absolute instinctive thing to do, you know, always get somebody to look at it. I mm -hmm. still get people to look at emails, especially high stakes emails, um, before I send them yeah. internally. Does it make sense to you? Are there any typos? And a good evaluator does that. Especially one like myself, who is not very good at the detail-oriented aspect of this work. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I rely on people to provide that support for me. And um, like all my manuscripts go out for copy editing because I will miss a lot of things that, you know, uh, and same but with But that's great. That's yeah. fine. That's absolutely fine. And, the, yeah. and it's always a team effort. It's exactly. never a single person's. And, and so if you think that evaluation is a career for a single person on their own, it's very hard to be on your own. You're always part of a team. Yeah. 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 Awesome, Jennifer. Thank you so much. This has been such a valuable podcast episode. I'm just, I'm very excited to write all my thoughts down and share this with my students, um, this, this cohort and onward, because I'm, there was just so much here that I, I try to communicate. Um, and I think you just did a, such a great job of really like laying out the process for all of this. So I'm just, I'm very grateful that you came on to talk with me today. Well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evaluland.